0: The Naked Scientist. It's 19 minutes to uh, 3 o'clock after Joan trading. Chris, you are my second favourite person
1: today. Oh, well, that's good. Only the second, though. I'm slightly (laughs) disappointed to be only in second place. But that's good enough for me for now.
0: Listen, Joan trading is not, uh, you know, it's not too terrible. As in to come second to her is not too bad.
1: Well, okay, that's true. That's true. Okay, (laughs) I'll take it back. I'm very honoured. <laughs> Good to have you. You're, my, to you're still my number one slot. I look forward to Seeing you, yeah. talking to you, chatting to you every Monday. Yeah. brightens up Monday. Monday is notorious, isn't it? Everyone's scared of Monday. Everyone hates Mondays. I love them, and it's because you know we get to chat. We get to have this session. It really is. It's great fun, and um, and I welcome the the wonderful questions everyone sends in.
0: Yes, and some of them have come in on WhatsApp, but we also want to, you want your calls for this zero one one eight eight three zero seven zero two. Um, but Chris, I thought let's start with a little bit of a clarification around reports coming out of Turkey. This thing called sea snot that's washed up on their shores. What is it? I know,
1: it's terrible, isn't it? Um, you know, many people like to visit a beautiful bit of coastline uh, from Turkey, south of Istanbul. And normally the water is this amazing blue, crystal clear. Well, not at the moment, because there is this raft of material which is really, really thick, sludgy, viscid, Thick mucousy material it's actually what's called mucilage and it is produced by marine algae Hmm. and algae are marine plants and when you cause a growth or explosion of the algae in the water then they all raft together and produce this material and this is basically dead dead algal skin as it were and it is a sign that the water is being overloaded with materials capable of, of promoting the growth of plants And this stuff has the unfortunate consequence, not just of looking nasty, but what it does is to rob the surrounding water of all its oxygen, because the water has no contact with the overlying air, so it cannot oxygenate via that route. And the microorganisms that are forming these rafts are themselves consuming oxygen. Mm. So you end up with a, a dead zone underneath this, where normal species that extract oxygen from the water and depend on that for their survival cannot survive. So what do they do? They go elsewhere. And you end up with an area devoid of the normal sorts of life that you would expect to find in the ocean. So it has enormous repercussions, but it's almost like a barometer for ocean health. Last week, we recognized World Ocean Day. And so it's sort of timely that we get this very stark, very visible reminder of what we're doing to the world's oceans. Because this has happened because of runoff. And uh, when people put fertilizers and other things, which can be as benign and banal as just detergent down the sink, And it ends up in the ocean. There are various things, including phosphates in there, which will encourage the growth of these marine algae. And that has these consequences. So it's a wake up call, really, that we're going to see more and more of this happening to our planet unless we have better stewardship of our oceans.
0: Oh, my goodness, Chris. Uh, Are these uh, different from uh, the algae that help to keep the the planet livable, as in that are involved in, what is it, uh, the provision of oxygen or, yeah?
1: Well, everything in moderation really mm-hmm. when things are in balance the ecosystem exists almost like a really finely balanced spider web where everything depends on everything else and you have a certain amount of something that produces stuff you have a certain number of things that eat those things that produce stuff and you have a certain number of things but fewer that eat the things that eat the things that produce stuff the whole thing is in a fine balance and just like a spider web if you start trimming a few strands here and there yes there's still a web there but it goes out of shape. And before it can reform and rebalance itself, it can go very out of shape. And this is a sign that we are trimming the strands of the spider web via our activities as as humans, exploiting the planet the way we are, and we are deforming that very delicate, very finely balanced web of life and the ecosystem. And this is one very visible consequence.
0: Mm, Sure. Let's go to the lines now. You may have a question a little uh, uh, as an extension of uh, the cease not in Turkey uh, or you may have a completely different question what's caught your uh, curiosity what's captured you Zero one one let Let's start with Eddie next in Germiston. Hello Eddie.
1: Hello and hello to the doctor. Uh, just a question on the covid. How is the expiry date or when it can be used we know milk and all that sort of things but how do they actually determine when it's good when it's bad um for users because it is some concern because uh, to me it's been changing temperatures have changed storage has changed why hadn't all the checks been carried out at manufacturing place those sort of questions if the doctor could help
0: thank you for that Eddie. chris
1: We put expiry dates on medicines and healthcare products for the safety of the user, not just because with time going by, things might not work as well. They may also have seals that break down. They may have seals that breach, and so they get contaminated with things. And in the case of things like vaccines, where they may contain a live agent or at least say a virus like the AstraZeneca vaccine, this is a modified cold virus, which depends upon its integrity as a viral particle to do its job as a vaccine. And if things are not stored optimally, or even if they are stored optimally, things don't last forever. In the same way that a nice bottle of wine doesn't remain a nice bottle of wine unless you store it ideally, and, and ideally you drink it within the the bottling life of that wine, or it's never going to taste as good as the winemaker intended it to. It's the same with pharmaceuticals and the molecules that are in there that do the important job of keeping us safe and keeping us healthy Mm. they do continue to undergo chemical change over time they can fall apart they can rearrange themselves they can react with each other very very slowly but that can still happen and you end up with a product you can't rely on Mm. so when they first invent these products they will put a conservative mark on them to say well this is what we know is safe we know it works we've done these tests but as time goes on You may learn more about the product, you may learn more about its resilience to temperatures and so on, and you may then refine that date a bit. And we've seen that with some of these vaccines so far. When Pfizer first wheeled out their vaccine, they said this needs to be kept at minus 80 degrees until the time at which you're just about to use it. That has now been revised up a bit and it can be kept in a standard fridge for a little while at least. Uh, giving us um, more degrees of freedom when it comes to using it, because we've gained more confidence and more knowledge around how safe and effective it is. And so it really comes down to our experience with the medication as much as anything else.
0: Okay. Uh, We've got uh, Doe in West Dean. Hello, Doe.
1: Hi, how are you? Good and you? No, don't complain. Mm. Um, I've just got a question Mm. for the professor. Uh, Why... Is
0: it the the bottom rib is the only bone that can really grow itself? The rib uh,
1: bone, the bottom doctor. one. <laughs> um, well, the the answer is that uh, if you have a the removal, a complete removal of a bone, you're you're not going to regrow that. The lower couple of ribs are floating ribs. That uh, means that they are not actually jointed to another bony structure. They actually float and they form a connection to cartilage, which then connects up to your sternum, which is the breastbone. And cartilage can, to an extent, regenerate itself, but the, if you went in and you removed a, a complete chunk of ribcage, you're not going to grow that back. Right. And this is because uh, there are certain things that we actually... We, we produce them when we are a developing embryo. We lay down a pattern or a scaffolding for them, and if we destroy that scaffolding, you don't get those bits of the body back after a critical period of development. There are other tissues that can regrow, of course, and there are other animals that can can regrow bits of the cells, but the general rule of thumb is that the more complicated an organism becomes, then the less regenerative potential that it has, presumably Mm. because it's so complicated putting it together in the first place. Mm. But certainly there are people who have to have bones removed. I mean, a good example of another long bone is is in your legs, for example. If you have a a cancer or a tumour in a bone and you have to have that bone taken out, sometimes the whole leg has to go. Sometimes doctors can take out the diseased segment of the bone and they can then rebuild the bone by grafting material in. And bone can remodel and regrow, but you need a scaffolding, you need a shape or a structure for it to follow and cells capable of laying down fresh bone in order to get it back. So it's not just as simple as saying, I could take this bone out and I'll get a new one. The body doesn't work quite like that.
0: Mm. Here's a question from Felicity on WhatsApp. And it says, Dr. Chris, do babies feel pain as they're being squeezed through their mother's cervix and vagina? So through that birth canal. Uh,
1: they, They probably do, because we know that if we do things to babies, even when we do things to babies, when they are... Premature, So babies that have been born before their normal due date and therefore yeah. have a degree of development which is earlier or more primitive than a, a full-term baby, they will still react accordingly when we do things which, if you did them to an adult, that, that one would describe as unpleasant. For instance, you know, these babies may be in intensive care. They may need medical interventions carrying out on them we know that uh, babies do respond as though they are experiencing discomfort what we can't say though is that they are capable of interpreting that unpleasant reaction and knowing that that is what we call pain, it may just be that a local reaction is happening because their brains are inadequately developed to process what pain really is it may be just in the same way if you reach out and touch a hot stove you don't have to think about it, you snatch your hand back to avoid being burned, Mm -hmm. it may be partly a reflex action on the part of the babies but no, certainly people have done studies on brain activity patterns and they can show that stimuli that adults uh, regard as unpleasant babies seem to decode them in the same way so our, our our real interpretation of this is that probably babies do feel pain do they feel the pain of childbirth probably not as much as mum does <laughs> and, uh, but probably they they do probably get quite squeezed And they probably do find that a rather strange experience, but they're not in a position to lay down any memories. Babies don't start remembering things until their brains are a little bit more developed. So it may may well be that actually part of the discomfort of being squeezed out is the wake-up call that helps them to actually take that first important breath and wake up and switch on once they're properly born so I think the answer is that we don't know we can never know but Mm. by measuring, making measurements we have measured we know the babies can find certain stimuli unpleasant so they probably don't really like being born but it may well be that that uh, bursting out into the cold reality and bright reality of being outside mum does actually help to give them the wake up call they need to to start getting on with life and um, breathing and acting for themselves
0: Yes, must be a dreadful shock let's go to uh, Jeff (laughs) in the clinic. hello Jeff yeah. Good afternoon, the NASA scientist. Yes, yeah, afternoon, Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Yeah, cool. yourself. Um, tell me, um, Prof. Why is it that the Earth crust does not cave in? We are meant to understand that if you dig deep, like you digging for a, a mini borehole, and you dig very deep down from any point on the Earth crust, you will find water. Now, why is it that the Earth crust, said, is not caving in? It remains the way it is. Mm. And by the fact that you can definitely get water from any point you dig from the earth surface. If you dig okay. that, dig down. Okay, there we go. Thank you so much, Jeff. So after digging borehole, after that water's been removed, why doesn't the crust uh, cave in? Y-
1: yes, people often say, well, why doesn't the same thing happen with oil? Yes. What is it that... Uh, left behind when we've got oil out of the ground and the answer is that very often in situations where you will extract water and you will extract oil from the ground you're not you're not tapping into some enormous submerged ocean rarely that is the case but on the whole where water is within the earth's surface is in porous rocks This means rocks that are like sponge. They have lots of little gaps and and holes in them, all of which are interconnected. And when you sink a borehole into those rocks, you are tapping into the spongy layer of rock where where there's water under pressure within the matrix of the rock. So when you draw the water out, you're not leaving behind a water-sized void you are just leaving behind rock with a bit less water in it and more water flows in to replace the water that you've taken out because the water's under pressure. So yes, somewhere there'll be a bit less water in the system but because this is not just a giant void, it's spongy rock, there's still enough rock there to support things, at least for a while. In the longer term, that may be different and it's the same with oil. When we pull oil out of the ground from an oil well, we're getting the oil out of spongy porous rocks which leaves behind enough of the rock when the oil is gone or has been replaced by water very often to displace the oil out Mm. that you don't end up with a giant void that then is under uh, or at threat or at risk of collapsing.
0: Mm. So even that layer or that crust is ever-changing, it's not to say that it's just fixed and then we remove something and then it can easily collapse, there's still more changes that happen
1: there. Well imagine a sponge and if I were to suck on one side of a sponge if you've If you've had a sponge in the water and uh, you, you lift the sponge up and you suck on one side of it, you get water and a mouthful of water from throughout the sponge mm-hmm. because all the holes in the sponge are connected together. Mm-hmm. So the water flows through the sponge and gets into your mouth. That's like you putting a borehole into porous rock. But the sponge is still there. It's just that the gaps in the sponge have had water move through them and uh, and they haven't suddenly made the sponge disappear. The sponge is still there and capable of holding its shape, and the rock does a similar sort of thing.
0: Great analogy. Thank you, Chris. Lumkile in the Johannesburg CBD. Hello. Hi, good day. Thank you, as and Chris. Yes, I
1: welcome. I
0: wanted to know
1: uh, when someone has died of COVID-19, uh, usually the poor parents or the people that will attend to that body, they have to wear protective gear. Mm. So I wanted to know if that uh, virus is still alive and then, if it is what processes are there that keep it alive? I just wanted also, if he, um, if it's possible, uh, if you can explain when someone has passed on and then they have uh, food in their, in their stomach, do they still continue to digest the food? I know this was one of the quandaries issues in the Oscar Pist- uh, Pistorius trial that uh, there were some who were ugly that uh, some scientists say that you do still digest the body, um, the food in your body once you and so on. If you can leave the two and just explain that, I'll appreciate
0: All right, Lumkile, thank you. Two-part question there. So the first one is about uh, the protective gear that pallbearers or funeral attendants uh, wear. Uh, what is the threat? Is the virus still present?
1: COVID-19 is the disease caused by a chiefly respiratory infection and when a person passes away from coronavirus infection they cease breathing and since the virus is mostly confined to their respiratory tract and, uh, and chiefly grows in the respiratory tract and is blown out into the air when a person breathes, since they're not breathing much less virus is now leaving the body. There will be inevitably some virus on surfaces that that person has been in contact with or touched or coughed onto during life. But in normal circumstances, when people are careful about preparing a person for being buried or cremated, then they will take great care to make sure that actually the person, once they're in a coffin or a casket, that that has been kept clean. And so the number of opportunities to pick up an infection from a sealed coffin I would say is vanishingly low hmm. uh, not you can never say never in medicine never say it zero but it's vanishingly low and it's not like the person continues to cook up and incubate coronavirus inside their coffin and it then comes sort of spewing out through all the cracks that's not going to happen because when a person dies viruses are parasites and they rely on the viability of our cells to make more viruses and if our cells cease to be viable which is what happens once you die then you can't make any more virus and you're, you're not gonna make any more coronavirus and you're not gonna cough out any more coronavirus. So the risk therefore is very, very low, but because you can never say never in medicine and there might be small amounts of virus that have gone onto surfaces inadvertently, people are just being very careful. Now, in terms of what happens after we die and what happens to our body's processes, as we die, when we pass away, we don't just shut off everything and life doesn't just stop at that moment. Your body has got 37 trillion cells in it and many of them will continue to function for quite a while after you die. It's just that once you've died your brain is no longer sustaining consciousness, your heart is no longer beating but there will be viable tissue all over your body for quite some time including the microorganisms in your intestines and the microorganisms in your intestines will continue to digest your dinner for quite a while after you pass on. So you don't stop breaking down your dinner straight away but certainly it's a useful indicator as to when someone last ate because you can see what they have or haven't got inside them. And the de- de- degree of breakdown of that material does give you some indicators towards when they actually did die because we know how fast that material does tend to break down.
0: Wow. Wow. Thank you for that question, Lungkile. Taking us back to what was uh, a case that dominated our headlines for a very long time. Sure. Thank you so much, Chris.
1: Thank you and see you soon.
0: Yeah, we spoke to Join Armour Trading. She said it was sweltering over there, so enjoy the summer. It is.
1: It is. It is. And in my studio I'm in now, it's 35 degrees in here. I need to invest in some aircon, I think. Hope you're in some shorts and flops. (laughs) Do it right. I will be in a minute.
0: (laughs) All right. Thank you, Chris. (laughs) What's the